Today we're going to be this evening in 1 Samuel 11 and then in chapter 12 as well. The last time we looked at 1 Samuel, we saw Saul's presentation to the children of Israel, and today we see Saul's popularity. Uh, the guy really starts out well, a major battle against the Ammonites, and as well we see Samuel, his office, really acquiesce to the new office of the king. Verse 1, then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is none, no one to save us or deliver us, we will come out to you. So let's look at the players, Jabesh Gilead. These guys were Israelites. They were on the east side of the Jordan River in Manasseh's territory. And if you keep going east from their territory, you'll run into the Ammonites. So there's an invasion to the west. Now, if we look at this, what we can see is that the Jabesh Gileadites, the children of Israel, are ready to concede. And we notice that they're not calling on the Lord as we continue to read through this. And three, they're considering selling themselves essentially into slavery. Now, you have to understand, in those days, you needed both eyes. You needed your depth, depth perception if you were a warrior. If you were an archer, you needed that depth perception. If you were a swordsman. So by taking out, it's pretty, people were really brutal back then, and they still are, but um, they would say, well, listen, line up all your men, we'll gouge out their right eyes, and then, you know, we won't attack you. But again, they've essentially sold themselves into slavery because they can't rise up, they can't defend themselves. Uh, and that's what sin, which the Ammonites were a type of, uh, make us. It makes us ineffective and defeatists. And sadly, even in the church, it's not just the children of Israel. God's people don't call on the Lord at times. They don't repent. Some are so spiritually anemic that they are ready to either give up or compromise at the first sign of trouble. Or at times, just to get the pressure off me, willing to compromise, willing to enslave themselves to anyone or anything that will take the pressure off. Now, understanding if the Ammonites, and you see the parallels, and there's a lot of typology in the Old Testament we can see uh, how God uses through certain groups and types of sin, types of different things that we can really make an application to in our lives. But in the Ammonite situation, it would have been a false peace because it would have led to the slavery of the children of Israel. You know, even some are willing to find a church or a doctrine in a church that gives them a pardon to remain carnal believers, enslaved to their own sin. Spiritual cowardice that leads to spiritual slavery. Verse 3, they say, if there is no one to save us. I just thought about God's feelings, you know, how he must have felt when, I mean, how many times did he have to go through this? How many times did Samuel even remind them of what God did for them? So in a time of crisis, they're looking for a man. They're looking for someone to deliver them. How quickly they forgot that what God had done for them throughout the past. Even those stones that they set up, all those memorial stones, every time they would pass by that, uh, there would be someone to explain, well, this is what God did for us here. 
but they, they were looking for a man. What do we do when we're in trouble? Do we run to a man or do we go to the Lord first? The modern church sometimes is looking for a celebrity or a champion. Dave and I spoke about this this week in the office. Uh, you see the modern church. Remember, it was Mel Gibson? Well, that was embarrassing because the man keeps getting himself into trouble. And, you know, I certainly don't want him as my champion. Um, church keeps looking for somebody, a titular head that they can point to when we should be looking to God. There was even a controversy last year when Glenn Beck spoke at the uh, Liberty University. And the guy's got some off-the-wall beliefs that are not orthodox Christianity. We, we don't need a champion. We need the Lord. We need to turn to the Lord in times of crisis. If you look at Nahash, okay, his name actually means snake, and it was certainly appropriate for him. We know that Satan used a serpent in the Garden of Eden. He was cunning, cruel, and add pride to the list. Now, if I was the bad guy in this situation, I wouldn't let them go find someone to help them out. I'd say, okay, they're weak. Let's attack them. But maybe in his pride and, and his overconfidence, he's, he probably figured there's nothing they can do to get themselves out of that situation. Verse 4. So the messengers came to, came to Gibeah of Saul and told all the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Now, Saul hears about this awful situation and the Spirit of God. Because of the Spirit of God, he has a righteous anger. Some have the wrong idea of what God's people are supposed to be. You know, we are to be loving and peaceful, but uh, we're not necessarily always to be pacifists. In this situation, there was something that stirred him up, and it was because of God's Spirit that he was angry. It was a call to action. There's a time to be fed up. There's a time to call out sin. And there's also a time to call out our own sin. Now, I'll admit to you, um, the same sin on you looks worse than it does on me because of my perspective, because of my selfishness. So there is a time also that we, we, it's a call to arms, it's a call to action in a spiritual sense, but at the same time, we need to look at our own sin and also be disgusted with it. Saul tells the children of Israel, help your brethren or else, <laughs> pretty much. He sends them the pieces of the team of oxen and says, this is what's going to happen to yours if you don't come out and help your brothers. Uh, there's a consequence for inaction. And, and it's true, even when we look at things, our attitude shouldn't be, well, if it doesn't affect me personally, I'm not going to get involved. I remember when I was in college and I took a course called Criminal Law of New Jersey, and uh, the teacher was a, a lawyer for many years, and he said that in New Jersey, and probably most states, there is no criminal charge for seeing someone maybe dying and struggling and not lifting a finger to help. You could actually walk right past them, and there's, you can't be charged for it. You could say, yep, I saw it. I didn't feel like doing anything about it. Now, we have a higher obligation than that, of course. Uh, we know that in the Bible there's sins of omission. We know that if we don't keep a relationship with the Lord, 
And we're going to see what Samuel says about failing to pray for the people, that there's those sins of omission. So, yes, we always think of the big ones. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't kill. But let's not forget to maintain that relationship with the Lord. Jesus says in John 15, abide, which really means remain or stay. That's an action for us to continue that relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, the branch withers and dries, and it's not good for anything. So the Ammonites were to stick together, and that's how they, they were going to defeat, I'm sorry, the children of Israel were going to stick together to defeat the Ammonites. Now, of course, we already spoke about how they should have called on the Lord, and this was kind of the, definitely the far second best option. Verse 8. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, uh, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So Saul gathers the children of Israel, comes up with a battle plan. Um, very interesting. Three companies, different flanks. It doesn't go into detail, but he put a little thought into it. And they defeat the Ammonites. And notice afterwards, sure, they, he has to deal with them. He has to break their, um, their strong stranglehold. But at the same time, he doesn't repay evil for evil. You don't see him taking out their eyes or, you know, doing anything like that. A point of interest in verse 8, Bezek, if you're interested in the geography, uh, somewhere near the nexus of Benjamin and Judah. So Jabesh Gilead would have been just under 50 miles northeast of where Saul was. Okay. Now, two Ammonites were left standing. If they were a picture of sin, the message here is to be ruthless with that sin. Uh, be ruthless with it. And that's the principle behind it. Um, remember, you kind of look at antibiotics like that. Some people say, hey, I was on antibiotics for three days. I feel great. I'm going to stop taking them. No, doctor says take it for two weeks because, you know, the ones that survive, uh, the bugs will become resistant to that and you'll have a super infection and a rebound. So in the same sense... Sin is lurking. The Bible tells us that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In all of our lives, sin is ready for an opportunity to take the forefront and take control. So we have to be decisive with it. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So finally, a galvanizing of God's people over this incident, and sometimes it takes a crisis, even in the church, for people to come together. It shouldn't, but sometimes it does. And sometimes a crisis will cause a redefining of doctrine and go the wrong way. And we've seen that, too, throughout church history. Sometimes when Christians are really pressed, um, they'll redefine their doctrine to 
uh, accommodate their new situation and why they don't have to follow it. In other words, the church, now I'm going off the subject here, but if you look at the church, some of the church in communist countries, the surface church, not the underground church, they're, they're really soft on Jesus as being God. They're soft on Jesus coming back and vanquishing the worldly kingdoms because communism won't stand for it. Even in China, there's millions, hundreds of millions of Chinese that meet in house churches and wooded areas and such because they want to follow God's word the way it was set out. So um, you can see many different things happening in times of a crisis, but in this situation, they came together. Now, those men... If you remember the earlier chapters when Saul was um, really introduced by Samuel, there were some men who said, well, we're not going to have this guy to reign over us. So the children of Israel, because of Saul's popularity now, he shoots up there. They say, hey, where are those guys that said he shouldn't reign? Let's, let's take him out and, you know, kill him. And Saul, again, Saul's starting out great here, but we'll see that he doesn't end uh, so good. And he says it's not going to happen today. Verse 14, we see this rededication, maybe revival. Gilgal, if you remember, was the place after the whole spies things at Kadesh Barnea, when they first came into the land wholesale, after the 40 years of the people dying out in the wilderness, they entered into Gilgal, and you can see that in John 5. Um, Later on, Jerusalem becomes the place for spiritual events and spiritual uh, celebrations. And in verse 15, there's a peace offering. This is a symbol of thanksgiving, worship, relationship, and really fellowship pre-Christ. So there was things that the children of Israel did. It was a type of the Christ who, because of his sacrifice, gave us complete access to God and the throne room and prayer and petition and fellowship. But before that, they had the offerings and other things that the people would do to um, appreciate God, thank him, and really have that relationship with him pre-Christ. Now we're going to jump into chapter 12, and we're going to see that 12 and 11 really go together. Verse 1, it says, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. What a long and illustrious career Samuel had. In verse 3, he says, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. Not exactly a retirement party here uh, with Samuel. Uh, I I just love these men of God. Sometimes they're just a little blunt, a little crusty at times. Um, Certainly he's just saying to everyone, uh, you know, I'm acquiescing. My position is giving way really to uh, the king leading over you. So he just wants to set, set the record straight that he lived an honorable life in that office. And, and I think that's something, um, it's an accomplishment. You know, we see that any position of power today, whether it be ecclesiastical or political, oftentimes there is some type of, unfortunately, corruption or uh, ways of man or worldliness. And Samuel could stand before them and basically say, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't do any of that stuff. 
Uh, and maybe, again, he's a little callous. Um, ministry isn't for wimps, that's for sure. <laughs> and my pastor said to me, you'll develop a thick skin and some calluses over time. And that's the truth. But Samuel gracefully bows out. And, of course, he still has a spiritual function. But as far as the office goes, Saul's the king now. You know, I, I like to see what Samuel does here. He doesn't fight. He doesn't try to hold on to that power. You know, you're not going to, you're going to have to throw me out. He just is a man of God. And I wonder sometimes when we see on TV or read in the news about some of these huge church splits or these uh, coups in the church or power grabs and, and everyone's at each other's throat and the church is divided over who should take power. And I wonder what the world thinks when they see that. You know, if we could all just kind of take the example from Samuel, just saying, okay, the Lord's doing a new work here. My time has ended. So I love that about this guy. Um, the only blemish in his ministry was his sons. His sons were, uh, didn't have the same character as dad's. They were corrupt. We saw that. Satan will always go for the weakest link. You know, uh, kids are, our children are, are so dear to us, but at the same time, you know, we have to set... A good example, and even when we do, you see kids, children come from good, godly homes, and they still kind of go the wrong way. It's not always the fault of the parent. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge with our children. We, we don't want to baby them, or we don't want to baby them or spoil them, but at the same time, we uh, also want to spend as much time as possible and show them we love them. And certainly, um, the good thing is uh, Samuel didn't let his sons pull him away from ministry. Sometimes we see when we're, our kids become teens or our young adults, um, it's not the time to compromise what God is having us do just because they're our flesh and blood. That is an important lesson that we need to understand because we see this happen a lot in leadership, especially in the Old Testament. The kids went the wrong way, and it was really a tenuous situation between them and the leader who was in office at the time. Verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubel, Bedin, or Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you dwelt in safely. You dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall rule over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. 
So Samuel, and I did stress the Lord, emphasis mine, because I was just trying to show what I think Samuel was trying to show, the difference between men and God. Uh, Before you guys get too enamored with the king, before you get too, and this is what the Pharisees did, Moses, Moses, Moses. Okay, Moses was a man. Understand that the Lord is always the greatness behind any great man or woman. Don't forget that. And he didn't want the children of Israel to forget that. Priorities is the Lord. You pushed, you pushed, you pushed. God always delivered you. God always took care of you, but you kept pushing for a king. Now you got a king. But don't forget, it's the Lord. Remember, you could, you could imagine the frenzy. You know, everybody comes together. They defeat the Ammonites. Jabesh Gilead is saved. And Saul's popularity, you know, they, they take popularity polls in our country. How's the president doing? How's Congress doing? Man, if they had a popularity poll back then, it'd probably be close to 100% for Saul. King Saul really, really started off with a bang. In verse, in verse 6, God sent Moses and Aaron to deliver. It was God who sent them. And in verse 11, God sent the judges to deliver the children of Israel. Don't miss this. Verse 12, it was so important that he had to warn them against man worship, personalities in ministry. And that's troubling when any of, the, any of God's people, whether it's the children of Israel or the church today, starts looking at the man and the personality behind the ministry versus what's being taught. It's great to remember funny things that the pastor says or stories, but if, you know, so what'd you learn in church today? Um, I don't remember, but the pastor told a really funny story. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if months go by and we're going through a book, well, what did you learn through that book? What's God showing you? I don't know, but I really love my pastor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we have to be careful of that because it's really, uh, God just puts us here. He, he places us where he needs to place us. But we have to be loyal to him and what we're preaching from the pulpit. Verse 15. Same thing holds true today. If you're going to call yourself a child of God and you rebel against God and you do wickedness, expect God to discipline you. There's a lot of good points that Samuel's making here. Verse 16. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? which was roughly late May that we would understand, or early June. I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I love this guy. You know, He's just got such a good relationship with God. And he didn't say, and God's going to send it, and nothing happens. He was completely in tune to the Spirit of God, so that if he was to call it down, he knew that God would do it because what he was saying was in harmony with God's heart. Um, I I can't help but think about these guys. Um, Harold Camping is one of them, you know. I can't wait until May 22nd when the world doesn't end. Right? I mean, they just presume to speak for God. Let me tell you something. I'd be afraid to do that. I don't think I'm a weak guy, but when it comes to God's word, I have to stay very close to this book. I don't want to divert too far, even with some of the analogies, because it's, it's God's word that's important, not what I think. It doesn't matter what I think. So what you're starting to see is these guys who, are unlike Samuel, they don't speak for God. They don't have God's heart. 
They don't have his spirit, and they're saying a bunch of wacky things. And what does the world see of Christians when they listen to family radio? And what are they going to see May 22nd when we're still here? Hopefully people stop listening. The guy should go bankrupt. You know, teach him a lesson. Let's go back to the wheat harvest. <laughs> so you tell it bothers me a little bit. I don't, I don't like when people presume to speak for God, and they're, out like, they're 180 degrees out of sync with what he's doing. The wheat harvest. This was, again... In this time period of the wheat harvest, why would they be freaked out by the thunder and rain? Because it was highly unusual that this would happen at this time of the year. And Samuel says it, probably when he just comes out of his mouth, it comes down and the people are like, wow, this was not a coincidence. Um, I get the other concern is with the harvest, you don't want a, a major thunderstorm and rain to flood it out and then it ruins your harvesting procedure. It could ruin the food. So... The people were dead. There was a lot more to their concern than just a, a rainstorm. You understand? I could see Samuel looking retrospectively, rebuking the children of Israel, and God more than happy to provide some signs and wonders for him in addition to that. And the concern was that these people of God were quick to run to a man instead of the Lord first. Right? You know, let's look at our own lives. Imagine... Our own lives. I mean, when, we, when there's a crisis, do we, do we have the mentality? Well, listen, it's a crisis. I don't have time to pray. i got to do things to fix the situation. Okay, we can do things to fix the situation and pray. I can tell you when I'm sent to a, a hot call and I'm in my police car and I'm going 90 miles an hour, I'm praying. You know, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to run into. So the smart thing to do is for us always to be tied to the Lord, no matter what it is. If there's a crisis, I don't have time to pray, it's not commensurate with, with our faith and our relationship with him. Um, rebuke for the past as well as warning for the future. Now, you have to, you have to check this guy out, Samuel. Uh, you know, the, just there's some men of God and women that really I just love, and I can't wait to meet them. But Saul really rises to prominence. He, this great battle, he galvanizes the people. And then Samuel goes out there and says, hey, you know, don't get too excited that guy's just a man. God put him there. Be careful. Uh, so with the height of Saul's popularity, with the, the uh, coupling of possibly the, the pride of Saul, think about, think about how men and women are. You know, when we do something great, sometimes we get a little ahead of ourselves and, and get all fluttered and think maybe it was us. So you got a popular king to the people. You got a king who maybe a little bit lifted up with pride, maybe. And Saul and Samuel has the courage to say, don't get carried away. Because in those days, if the king didn't like you or they didn't like what you said like that, off with your head, you're done. But Samuel only feared the Lord. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So the light bulb goes off. They get it. Then Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have done all this wickedness yet. Watch this. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me... Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him 
in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Verse 20. I love this. He says, you have done wicked, yet don't stop serving him. There are some that sin. There are some that, oh, I I really blew it this time. Oh, I fell back into this addiction. Oh, I looked at something I shouldn't have done. I I went somewhere where I shouldn't have gone. Um, And they, they, they get so filled with condemnation for themselves that they don't go to church. They don't pray. They don't read their Bible because they're so overcome with guilt. I love this about Samuel. It's only like one verse, but he says, don't do that. He goes, basically, listen, repent. You admitted you did wrong. You said you vocalized what you did wrong, but don't stop serving him. That's important. Satan will whisper to you, especially if you're in a moment of weakness and you mess up and you sin, and he will say, you don't belong in church because there's only good people in church and you're not good, stay home. Right? I mean, how many people have not experienced that? Because that's what Satan will do. And, and Samuel's saying, no, pick yourself up, keep moving forward. The God, God, as soon as you repent and it's heartfelt, God forgives us. That's the beauty of repentance. All of our unrighteousness, the Bible says. But continue to serve him. You know, it, that's that part of that relationship. When we hurt each other, do we, do we never speak to each other again because we hurt each other? No, we ask for forgiveness and we you know, go out to breakfast or something and we move on. That's what we do. And God wants the same thing. He doesn't want us to be overcome with guilt. There is no condemnation in Christ, the Bible tells us. So I just love that point, and it really comes through into the New Testament. Verse 23, he says, Moreover, as for me, remember, he's he's acquiescing to Saul, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. I love this guy. How many times did I say I love this guy? About seven or eight times or so far? He basically says, if I don't intercede for you, then I'm in sin. It didn't matter that he didn't have a title. Right? That was his heart. And, you know, those of us who are mature, who have been walking with the Lord for a while, who do have a regular prayer life, um, I think that if we have the ability to come before God's throne and intercede, we should. We really should. And listen, how many times have you heard in church, oh, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you, and then you, like, at night you're like, who was I supposed to pray for? Sometimes I just cover it by saying, Lord, and for the person that I was supposed to pray for today, Lord, you know who they are, I just can't remember. But the thing is, we should be praying for each other. And if we're mature and we've been walking with the Lord, certainly we should be praying for, for others and interceding because we do have that bond with the Lord. And Samuel said, basically, it's a sin if I don't do it. Right? Pray and teach the right things as well. Verse 25. You know, it's kind of like when you're serving the Lord, there is no retirement. There really isn't. I remember as a secular person, and my pastor asked me to come on staff at the church I was going to. And, you know, I was used to the world. And I said, so what's the retirement package? And he goes, there is no retirement. He goes, pastors don't retire. You know, they don't stop serving the Lord and praying and teaching, even if they're not in the pulpit. So I just love that, you know. But it's a blessing. Verse 25, he says, But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is what I love about verse-by-verse teaching. Because the feel-good preachers out there, gospel light, right? Uh, No calories, less filling, you know, 
the, these guys preaching the gospel, and, and they, they must go around the Bible and, and omit these passages like landmines. Anything that's convicting, anything that's, that's judgment or damnation or, or whatever the case may be, um, hellfire, whatever it is, these guys have to not preach certain portions of the scripture. So I just wonder what they teach. They must go through the same circuit. You know, hey, God loves you. God wants you to be successful. God wants to encourage you. Listen, right here he says to them, if you still do wickedly, there's a consequence for your sin. You will be swept away, both you and your king. The one who just beat all those Ammonites, he's gone too. Um, yeah, God won't tolerate that. Unrepentant sin. A few concepts at work here. Number one, I look at this and I see always be willing or always be open to a new work of God or a new work of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, God eventually was going to have a monarchy. People pushed the timetable, but God gave his consent. So it's a new work. Uh, we have to be open to that. Two, always be open to giving up your position in God's economy. Right? If, we, if God is, if we're not doing the right thing and he needs to remove us and put somebody else in our place, we need to be open to that uh, and not hold on to it for dear life. Three, always suppress the natural fleshly tendency when there's a crisis to latch on the, to the tangible. And listen, do we hug each other? Do we cry? Do we pray? Do we um, talk to each other? Absolutely, that's there. But that's not the primary part of it. Our deliverance comes from the Lord. And the flesh, because we are in these bodies, the tendency is to latch on to other tangible people and items to help us to feel better. Trust solely in the Lord. Four, relationship. Relationship. If, you see a lot of ifs in the Bible. If, then, they're called conditional statements. God says, if you do this and you stay and you worship me and you don't follow other gods, things are going to go well for you. However, if you choose to worship other gods and, and all these kind of things and blaspheme my name and basically then those benefits from the relationship you had with me are not going to be there anymore. And listen, that's in any relationship we should expect that. There's benefits to having relationships. There's things that come with them. And when we break fellowship with others, well, there's negative consequences of that. And I will leave it with this. The relationship with the Lord himself is a benefit. So we can see benefits from the relationship with the Lord, but the actual idea and the concept and the blessing and the gift that God allows us to have a relationship with him, that in itself is the blessing. Let's pray.